Welcome to the New Heights Show on Education. I'm Pamela Clark, founder and director of the New Heights Educational Group. And I'm here with David Smith, the founder of Silicon Valley High School, who has helped us get these podcasts produced and delivered to you. Yes, Pamela, when we saw the great things that you and your army of volunteers were achieving at New Heights, we wanted to get involved. We're happy to work with you to leverage the internet and make quality education accessible and affordable to everyone, everywhere. Thank you, David. We appreciate Silicon Valley High School helping us to get these podcasts out to the hundreds of thousands of listeners from all over the world. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to New Heights Show on Education. Today's show, we're going to be talking about brains in school mismatch, having to do with subplasticity and the effectiveness of school and as I was saying, and we have some announcements. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. Topic for today, which is brains and school mismatch, and it has to do with how lessons and experiences can shape and grow your students' brains over time, uh, and has a lot to do with neuroscience and neuroplasticity. So before we begin to get into the article, Brains and School Mismatch, we're going to talk a little bit about neuroplasticity by uh, an article by Sarah Bernard helps to elaborate on neuroplasticity and how learning physically changes the brain. There are a few broad principles that we can state come out of neuroscience, says Kurt Fisher, education professor and director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at Harvard University. Number one, the brain is remarkably plastic, Fisher explains. Even in middle or old age, it is adapting very actively to its environment. The translation of this is that all those little brains in your classroom, if you're a teacher, are physically growing and changing every time they learn something, and there are always ways to keep that happening. Despite the fact that the concept of neuroplasticity is broad, vague, and hardly new, as the theory was born in the mid-1800s and was heavily researched throughout the 1990s, it is one of the most reliable and fundamental discoveries about the brain that we have to date. Intelligence is not Intelligence is not fixed, as it turns out, nor planted firmly in our brains from birth. Rather, it is forming and developing throughout our lives. Your brain on learning. According to neurologist and educator Judy Willis, as suggested by a research rich chapter in the second edition of Developmental Psychology, neuroplasticity is defined as the selective organizing of connections between neurons in our brain. This means that when people repeatedly practice an activity or access a memory, their neural networks, groups of neurons that fire together, creating electrochemical pathways, shape themselves according to that activity or memory. When people stop practicing new things, the brain will eventually eliminate or prune the connecting cells that form the pathways. Like in a system of freeways connecting various cities, the more cars go through a certain destination, the wider the road that carries them needs to be. The fewer cars traveling that way, however, the fewer lanes are needed. 
Neuroscientists have neuroscientists have been coursing cells that fire together, wire together since late 1990s, meaning that if you perform a task or recall some information that causes different neurons to fire in concert, it strengthens the connections between those cells. Over time, these connections become thick, hardy roadmaps that link very stimulating one neuron in this in the sequence is more likely to trigger the next one to fire. Thus, as Willis says, practice makes permanent. The more times a network is stimulated, the stronger and more efficient it becomes. Changing brains in the classroom. It turns out that if you tell students about this, it can have effect on their brains too. Researchers Lisa Blackwell of Columbia University, along with Callie T. and Carol Dweck of Stanford University published a study in the journal Child Development in 2007 that found that both morale and grade points look, took a leap when students understood the idea that intelligence is indeed malleable. Not only did these students who already believe this do better in school, but when researchers actively taught the idea to a group of students, they performed significantly better than their peers in the control group. Willis found this to be true in her middle school classroom as well. Her students were more motivated to study, she says, when they knew that they were fully physical, fully physically capable of building knowledge and changing their brains. Here are a few tips for making your classroom friendly to malleable brains. Practice, practice, practice. Repeating an activity, retrieving a memory, and reviewing material in a variety of ways help build thicker, stronger, more hardwired connections in the brain. Put information in context. Recognizing that learning essentially the formation of new or stronger neural connections, it makes sense to prioritize activities that help students tap into their already existing pathways. For instance, integrating academic subjects or creating class projects relevant to their lives. In other words, nix the rote memorization. Whenever new material is presented in such a way that students see relationships, they generate greater brain cell activity and achieve more successful long-term memory storage and retrieval. Let students know that this is how the brain works. Breaking through those neuromythological barriers that paint intelligence as predetermined may ease students' minds and encourage them not to use their brains. Willis notes that especially for students who believe they're not smart, the realization that they can literally change their brains through study and review is very empowering. So that we can just have a little background on learning and neuroplasticity, we're going to go to talk about some of the issues um, in styles of teaching and this concept of neuroplasticity. So we're going to read article by Alden Bloggett, Bands in School, a Mismatch. How do you improve learning if you never really talk about how learning happens? Since the fall of 1957, when Soviet Union, people have talked about school reform, proposing pretty much the same solutions for more than half a century. More math and science, higher standards, more money, better teachers, more accountability, longer school days and years, lots of educators, have done lots of work, but some money has been funneled into the effort, and the tide of mediocrity continues to rise. That could finally change if we invite a new voice into the conversation. Clearly, children need good teachers, and teachers need good training. Standards and accountability matter, but it would help the larger reform conversation if everyone spent more time looking at research 
into learning and the brain and less time rehashing the same tried issues. Failing test scores, not enough science and math, cliches about 21st century skills, left and right bearing myths, and that national obsession, obsession with being number one. The central issue is the mismatch between the way brains learn and the misconceptions about learning on which schools are built. The issue is the incompatibility between learning and schooling. Over the past 20 years, psychologists, neuroscientists, and other researchers have offered valuable insights into how to learn, how people learn. Research such as Kurt Fisher of the Harvard Graduate School of Education suggests that learning involves building new neural networks, understanding the Vietnam War or quadratic equations means wiring the brain, growing a network for the war or the equations. Subsequent use of these circuits relies less on recalling the facts and more on skills for rebuilding the relevant neural network when the concept is needed. <clears throat> Excuse me. This process of building and rebuilding neural networks is a process of learning and requires considerable effort from the learner. Teachers can teach or tell students anything they want, but only the learner can learn it. The essence of learning isn't memory and recitation. Meaningful learning, the sort of learning educators hope to foster, results from an active effort to understand, an effort that promotes the growth of increasingly efficient webs of neural connections among different regions of the brain. As it is built, the network for skill, the understanding, for the skill or the understanding, constantly falls apart or regresses. We seem to be getting it and then we lose it. For example, the idea or smart complex or its conditions supporting the learner's effort, the presence of a helpful teacher, a quiet room, become less supportive. In the changed conditions, the ability and understanding collapse and the learner needs to rebuild. Little wonder that kids may seem to get it during a lesson, yet bring in homework that reflects no understanding. One can almost hear teachers lounge comments, which is so they had never seen this stuff before. The cycle of building regression and rebuilding excuse me, is the brain's process of learning. Pardon me. Each time we rebuild the neural network, the skill or concept becomes more stable and automatic. The highest level of skill or understanding results from repeatedly ex-building and rebuilding cycle over time, often many years, moving through a sequence of increasingly complex levels. That movement is not linear and steady. It is dynamic and also messy. Flaws or emissions in building the structure of a skill or understanding can weaken the result and weaken the result and restrict progress to higher levels of ability. Look what happens when algebra learning in children who never build a solid understanding of fractions. Teachers can tell and talk. Tell and talk, but only learners can learn. Teachers may have taught fractions last week. Students may not have learned them, even if they remembered that the teacher had taught them. This failure of students to learn is not new to teachers. What is new is the reason for the failure to learn. It isn't that Sally won't listen or isn't intelligent or won't try harder to memorize what she's been told. It's that she hasn't engaged in the hard work of constructing and reconstructing neural pathways to understanding. And one reason for lack of engagement may as well be that Sally doesn't care. Neuroscientists also continue to establish the link between emotion, thinking, and learning. 
these are inextricably connected. The notion that emotion impedes good thinking and good decision-making is a myth. In fact, patients with damage to the part of the brain that plays an important role in integrating emotion and cognition have impaired thinking in several ways. Although these patients can have very high IQs, logic, problem-solving, planning, and decision-making all suffer. And although they retain knowledge that they developed prior to their injury, they cannot use this knowledge to manage their daily life. Just as you cannot separate hydrogen from oxygen and still have water, you cannot separate emotion from cognitive function and still have thinking and learning. This podcast is brought to you by Silicon Valley High School, the world's fastest-growing, video-based, self-paced, teacher-supported, fully-accredited online school that's recommended by more than 96% of students. Take individual courses at just $95 each or earn your high school diploma at any age. Check us out at svhs.co. The time is right to look at school reform through the lens of biology and psychology of learning. Antonio does of the University of Southern California has written that emotion is the rudder for thought. And his colleague, Mary Helen Yang, has developed the idea further, stating, we need to think in service of emotional goals. In other words, we think of things connected as goals that matter deeply to us. Passionate science teachers think a great deal about science. And while some of them succeed in sparking the interest of a few students, I get educators know that most students remain apathetic. Fortunately, what matters to some of these students are good grades. So they study enough to pass the test, which teachers tend to interpret as evidence of meaningful learning. Students who genuinely deeply who are genuinely deeply interested in science and teachers whose lessons support this kind of intellectual exploration are rare. These insights into brain function and learning the process of building, rebuilding neural networks and the connection between emotion and thinking are just two of many that suggest the need to rethink traditional assumptions about learning that we have shaped our schools upon. Learning is a much more complex process than most people imagine. Parents, teachers, administrators, even kids know that something happens to a child's innate curiosity and interest in learning about the world. We don't need researchers to tell us that the brain is a meaning-making organ. People make sense of the world in order to survive and thrive in it. Children are natural learners alive with questions. And then school happens, but it doesn't have to happen as it does. Thousands of thousands of good teachers drawing on years of experience, many sorts of classrooms have discovered these same insights into learning that research now supports. So these teachers deserve and what all students need are schools or an educational system that supports learning. The time is right for educators and researchers to become partners. The time is right to look at school reform through the lens of biology and psychology of learning instead of bickering about testing and standards and more of the same old failed practices. We don't sticks and carrots that our kids will not produce the sort of deep, meaningful learning that everyone claims to want. Neither will blaming teachers, parents, or kids. The goal is to integrate neurological science into the realm of educational development in order to achieve the meaningful learning that everybody wants. So just a little summation of what that article was talking about. 
is that, as we discussed in the first article about neuroplasticity, that there are definitely ways in which people learn that can be assisted by uh, memorization and practice. But what this article elaborates on is another aspect of learning, which is emotion. And it's probably not something very new to most teachers or parents of students that when someone is very disinterested in the subjects that they're being taught, it's very hard for them, I believe, to do well in. And I have experienced this myself, too, that it's very difficult to devote time and energy and to study topics that aren't very interesting or engaging. And so this article emphasizes the need for engagement of students into the subjects that they are learning about and to also have a more constructive and appropriate educational system that supports this type of learning rather than learning only for a test and learning only for a grade. As many teachers that I know um, who really care about their students, they don't want their students to just learn for a grade. They want their students to be deeply involved with the subject and learn and do well, but put more emphasis on wanting to learn more rather than doing well on tests. And unfortunately, the way the education system works now is that it's more on grades and tests than for the level learning itself. And this article emphasizes why that is an issue. And so it's something very interesting that I did want to share with those who are listening um, who homeschool and who also have children in uh, public or private or charter school. Just a little insight into some of the ways that perhaps what your school or books on education are telling you how your child learns may not be necessarily accurate, and it might be helpful to utilize this information about neuroscience and practice uh, and things like that into your daily schedule of teaching your child about the world or just assisting them with their homework or helping them with the class they may be struggling in. Next week's topic will be announced tomorrow on blogtalkradio.com. You can tune in to find out what that's going to be. And thank you so much for bearing with me uh, during some of these technical difficulties. Um, Hopefully next time that won't be an issue. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings.